So, throughout this podcast saga, I've made a few comments about not discussing a type or subgenre of podcasting, paraphrasing quote, right now or just yet, or that other plans were in the works and it would be better to time out a topic with the announcement of a show or a release, which then leads to a different set of problems when production delays inevitably happen because no one here actually has any clue about what they're doing. It's just super convenient that podcasting doesn't make you take a competency test when you submit your RSS feed anywhere. But today, I've actually got my act together. Somewhat. At least more than I usually do. So at the end of this episode is going to be a trailer for the newest show on the Miscellany Media Studios list. In fact, this might be the first place you can hear this trailer considering it can take a couple days for all the approvals to go through. And I didn't think that part of this process through. But hey, blessing in disguise, I guess? The people in the Miscellany Media Studios inner circle should really get to hear it first. So yeah, it works. Kind of. Or that's what I'm going to stick with. Anyway, somewhat building off of the comments I offered last week about whatever happened to the pizza at McDonald's, a totally legit investigative journalism podcast by a totally legit journalist, there's actually several shows out there that take on this approach to an extent. Whatever happened to the pizza at McDonald's is investigation in terms of the podcast Serial or some other true crime show. In which events happened, apparently clarification has yet to be achieved, and journalist has to find the truth. It's more of a compartmentalized mystery. Something happened over there at some time, maybe even before I was born, and ooh, spooky, we don't know what happened. Okay, that's a little condescending, and I don't mean it to be. But the appeal of those types of podcasts is a little different than what I'm going to be talking about today. In that, the subjects, and consequently the shows themselves, feel safer. Because these subjects are more easily removed from the listener. But as an extension of that, it's the listener's curiosity that keeps them engaged. As well as a bit of fear and distrust that, regardless of your opinions about the system as a whole, there are still cracks that exist for cases to fall through like yours, if it were to come up. But there are certain audio fiction podcasts that have added some other elements to that formula, to create something that might not necessarily feel different, but certainly has a different feel to them. Hi, it's M. Welcome to episode 67. That is to say, There are several podcasts that investigate events, whose reality can be up to interpretation, and present that narrative arc as the background for their work, an arc that runs along an arc in their personal life. You see, the investigation starts when this mystery infringes on the presenter's life or someone the presenter cares about. The inciting action is a problem that unintentionally exposes the existence of this mystery. The conflict is the investigation, and while you would think the conclusion is the explanation of these happenings, not so much. 
It's more like the inciting action in the presenter's personal life gets resolved somewhat. So the reason for the initial investigation is done, and then the narrator must decide whether to continue or not. As in, are we cleared for more seasons or not? Not to be too cynical in saying that, it's more like sometimes things don't go the way you want and a nice little bow is better than nothing. In these shows, the structure is different because of that intertwining of the character's life and the larger mystery. However, it doesn't just feel like an intensification of the plot A and plot B model. No, this can't happen when the mystery has unknown or super far-reaching rather not think about it ramifications. It's plot A and the very reality of our lives as we know it. Now, there are a few examples of this that might come to mind. But this show is based on the media that I have in my life, sticking to the ones that come into it organically. And for that, there's the productions from the Public Radio Alliance and Minnow Beats Whale, Tannis, Rabbits, The Last Movie, and if you narrow in on Minnow Beats Whale, The Black Tapes. All of these shows have an investigative element to them, a mystery to unfold, but it's very dark and sinister, almost otherworldly depending on how you want to define that specific term. I've talked about Tannis before in a podcast medley episode. I spoke about how Nick's characterization was able to carry the story through its more difficult moments. And what do I mean by that? Well, it has a lot going on in terms of details, relevancy of them aside, and if you wanted to play catch-up across a short period of time, so you could enjoy episodes as they were released, like I did, woo boy, that was a bit of a podcast rush. Kind of like a sugar rush. And that wasn't as clever as I thought it was. Basically, Tannis is an ancient myth about an entity that touches every weird thing that has ever happened in the Pacific Northwest. Not even limited to supernatural occurrences. Tannis has its hands in everything, and everyone is after it. And Nick's the glue that holds it all together. A similar thing could be said about the last movie, though it is a bit less ambitious because it is a single season story, but all of those episodes were also released in one day, so by design, it doesn't quite get away from the problems I described. But hey, there's Nick and Meerkatnip to do what Nick does in Tannis. Special yay for Meerkatnip, who is one of my favorite characters in all the shows ever. The Black Tapes and Rabbits have their own hosts who hold the stories together, but the need isn't so intense. Because their mysteries don't feel so disjointed? Or actually, paradoxically, the pieces are more disjointed or distinct, and for that reason, it's actually easier to see the progression of revelation in those cases. This isn't an exaltation of some and condemnation of others. Really, it's to justify why I want to move away from my original observation, somewhat. That having a guy-next-door type of host can help carry through weaknesses in a narrative. And that was the sort of thing I didn't typically associate with these investigative-type shows. In other examples of investigations, a narrator is simply a vehicle for information. In these shows, narrators or presenters are characters in and of themselves. They might actively work to be impartial observers, but when you look into things like this, 
they take over your life. Which begs certain questions, like how do you deal with that? How do you deal with the very nature of your world coming undone? See, that's the key part of all of this. The answer and then what we do with it, or how these shows handle revelation, not just as presentation, but also as incorporation and the ensuing developments that come from the characters accepting these new truths. That sets these shows apart from the true crime-slash-investigative podcasts that essentially bore them. It's not that these shows discuss a mystery to be pieced together. Rather, they make you see part of your reality for the first time. There's something ambitious about that, but the ambition of this construction can be a double-edged sword. Mysteries rely on relaying pieces of information, it's gradually exposing a picture. For the traditional investigative podcast, it's a straightforward process. Like I said before, there's discovery of a crime or offense, investigation, and revelation or at least clarification. Or even lack thereof. No answer is still an answer in some ways. It says something about the world we live in, but rather than revealing the identity of a negative force that walks among us, it states that negative forces can get away with their actions without being held accountable despite how high the stakes may or may not be. But take Tannis, for example, the show or concept, it doesn't make a difference. Tannis isn't like that. Tannis is this larger-than-life mysterious force that seemingly influences all the happenings of the Pacific Northwest. Finding answers really isn't a possible thing. When Nick flips over one rock, he only finds, like, ten more. On top of that, he has to unravel different threads tied to the motivation of different and opposing forces, some of whom are probably lying to him, but hey, maybe the lies themselves don't entirely make sense. That's up in the air, too. To give you another example, Rabbit starts off with the host Carly Parker investigating the mysterious disappearance of her friend, who just so happened to be trying to play a game called Rabbits, that, according to the show's universe, isn't just a game, but maybe a thread that holds our reality together. It's hard to say exactly. And that's the problem. It can be hard to say much about any of these things. The mental engagement required to keep up can be hard to muster in certain circumstances, and sometimes the clues, especially in rabbits, can feel a bit heavy-handed. Yes, all of these messages are supposed to speak to Carly specifically, so there's that, but as a solution, it's also a problem. It's a reason to not be so interested in the story. This is Carly's quest, and I, as an audience member, am just along for the ride. In all of these shows, I am passively listening to a discovery. I do not get to participate in the mystery in the same way that I do as a true crime listener because of this structure. The narrator, being a participant, holds pieces that they don't know are relevant and that I have no way of knowing about. Once again, this isn't meant as a critique, merely an observation. Remember, the premise of this podcast saga is that the medium permits the existence of the sorts of stories that couldn't exist before. Public Radio Alliance and Minnow Beats Whale certainly build off of the investigative journalism tradition, 
but these shows are distinct entities. In some ways, they could almost be considered the next step, evolutionarily speaking. It boils down to this idea that someone attempting to make a documentary inevitably and despite their best efforts becomes a part of the story they are trying to tell, or in some ways they have their own story that runs parallel to their investigation. I just listened to an Audible original the other day called It Burns, in which Mark Fennell explores the controversy surrounding the world record for the world's hottest chili pepper. Beneath the surface is his lifelong struggle with food, a negative relationship that leaves him desperate to, you could say, beat his body into submission. This is found in a few comments he makes in the beginning, and he tosses more out from time to time. And no, this episode isn't sponsored by Audible. I don't have any sponsorships beyond just a Kofi link. It's not relevant because of what it offers financially, but because of what it offers as a counterpoint. Mark's troubles are in the background of his investigation, and while you might keep them in mind during interviews and hear callbacks to his personal theme in them, that's you making a connection that may or may not be intended. It's more Easter egg than substance. Or so I thought last week when I was listening to this book long after I had listened to these shows. Now, I love spicy food like Mark does. It's a trait that I inherited from my father to my mother's chagrin. And as a woman in the 21st century, yeah, the food thing has its moments. So there is a sense in which I want to connect to Mark on his journey and better understand the piece he offers in so much as he does offer one. You see, the more likable the host is, or the stronger their reason for wanting to pursue an answer, the stronger certain questions are essentially begged. There's the more innocent ones like, how do you feel right now, or how are you right now in hearing this person say this thing, but there are also the more sinister ones like, what is your point, or certain manifestations of why are you doing this. I imagine this is somewhat the product of the social media influencer. Or it's a product of the same trend that bore them. Social media influencers being a type of creator whose strength comes in their realness or quote authenticity. Think YouTube. Because this is a weird byproduct of their faulty algorithms in so many ways. So okay, a YouTuber posts content about them, their point of view, or their lives. It's essentially their show to do with whatever they want. But, given the thirst of the algorithm for as much content from a single creator as possible, an arrangement that keeps their subscribers coming back to the website daily to see more advertisements that give them money, there is a certain type of creator that can easily gain traction and then becomes a cultural force. Cue the daily vlogger, whose content is presented as being a continuous glimpse into their daily life like reality TV, but with less production and people involved. So less of a filter. A daily vlogger can run their entire channel by themselves, and many do in the beginning. And as their audience grows, and the business side of it does too, more people are brought in, and that facade of authenticity might increasingly become a facade. But you don't see behind the proverbial curtain as an audience member. You only have your assumptions, assumptions based on framing, 
and YouTube presents itself as the place for independent creators to be themselves, the truth of that notwithstanding. Even for other types of content creators, the audience still believes they know the creator simply because the creator's personality is the appeal and or brand. A beauty guru, for example, might lead with their makeup skills, but with so many makeup tutorials on the website, personality drives the content to the audience ahead of the competitions. But that personality creates an audience with a certain type of expectation or assumption, and this is called parasocial interaction. Or it can be. The original term was coined in the 1950s. The core of the theory is that the audience develops a belief that the figure they observe in media is more of a quote, friend. But I'm going to chalk up some of those limitations to the times. Remember, this was devised in the 1950s, and no one knew what was going to happen to media in 60 years and the form that all of this new content was going to take, never mind the consequences. To bolster my approach, I'll also add that the psychologists involved in this theory highlighted television as the medium of choice for these things, and considering that YouTube, where this is most obvious, is the quote, new television, it's worth revisiting and reinterpreting these ideas in the light of these new developments. With that in mind, essentially, an audience might feel a connection to their creator of choice, but it's a one-sided relationship created from observation or media consumption. In YouTube, this feels particularly relevant, because what are we observing but the person in what could be thought of as a natural habitat or in their natural form, even if we can't prove it? That's just what we've been led to believe YouTube is for. None of this is inherently bad. Parasocial interactions can help model behavior, though that is a double-edged sword, as well as help someone construct their identity or just feel a sense of satisfaction. Parasocial interactions can't be our only interactions, but they do provide something. However, cue comment about how you can die from drinking too much water. Water, a basic component for your existence, can genuinely kill you if you take it too far. You see, we normally hear about parasocial interactions when they go too far, like it leads to someone going to their favorite YouTuber's home uninvited and a bunch of other people condoning it when someone pleads for it to stop. And just to make my position on that very clear, don't do that. Respect privacy. But to backtrack to where I actually want to go, parasocial interactions aren't necessarily bad. For one, these interactions can convey or teach positive behavior. They can do the opposite, yes, but stay on this side of the line with me for a moment. And in that moment, let's go back to YouTube. Jenna Marbles is the industry standard for talking about positive forces in the YouTube space. Despite her years on the platform and all her success, she still presents herself as a down-to-earth person who makes goofy content guaranteed to make you smile like the Pupsicle video she made the week before this episode went live. Also, she and her partner adopted a rescue greyhound and modeled, albeit in a limited capacity, the proper way to bring a rescue dog into a new home and what to expect when you do it. Positivity incarnate, but also realistic. We can also go back to mainstream media to see a different manifestation of this that hasn't quite found its roots in theory yet. 
a community on Reddit known as r slash freefolk that is devoted to Game of Thrones raised money for Amelia Clark's charity Same You that helps young people who have suffered from brain injuries or strokes. If you aren't familiar with Game of Thrones, Amelia Clark played Daenerys Targaryen, who kind of had that whole spoiler Mad Queen moment. Yet yeah, this all happened in the wake of that disastrous and poorly received season 8, which r slash free folk did not enjoy, and you can figure that out pretty quick. Here's the thing though, the community's devotion to her and the work she put into the show outweighed their opinion on the show and its ending. And from that relationship, they did an incredible thing for a cause close to her heart. In some ways, parasocial interactions are inevitable. Remember, it's all observation-based, so media consumption leads to that in some form, and it's these specific manifestations that need to be discussed and examined, usually on a case-by-case -case basis to determine if a parasocial interaction is reasonable. But at the same time, this is what the public radio lines and Minnow Beats Whale play with, this inclination to connect to the person at the forefront of the story. So make them a character and solidify what is bound to happen anyway. If I, as an audience member, am to grow attached or invested in the documentary lead, then they are relevant. They are part of the story as well. And to me, that's what sets these productions apart. It's an appeal to this impulse. I wouldn't say pandering by any stretch of the imagination. As creatures, we need connections. It's how we work and thrive. While it's true that it's not a real connection, at the same time, it shouldn't be. This is a fictional story, after all. And parasocial interactions shouldn't be the be-all end-all, but they're great at getting you through a difficult point. To add to that, the stakes of these mysteries would intensify the need for some sort of personal anchor. This is our very reality coming undone, Sterile presentation is only going to encourage me to chuck my podcast listening device across the room to make it stop. I'm not exaggerating when I say that the narrators are the glue that holds the story and the listener together. Because this is the actual conclusion I am making. These shows tap into the parasocial impulse, and that impulse can compensate when ambition doesn't quite carry. There's something absolutely brilliant in all of this. Making stories like these in which reality bends aren't easy because you as a writer might not necessarily know how that bend will work, or how to make that logic consistent, never mind how to explain that through someone who wouldn't have this information. And that leads to a sort of pinnacle question. Why care about the mystery when we are helpless to do anything about it and we can't have all the information anyway? After all, we aren't the chosen ones. But on the other hand, we know the person who is, and we're getting kind of worried about them. Thanks for listening! Now here's that bonus trailer I promised you. Follow at Miscellany Media on Twitter for updates on our newest show, Aishi Online, soon to hit a podcast player near you.
Hi, we've met before. Probably, or not. I don't... I don't know. I jumped into this whole podcasting thing after lurking for a long time. And I still don't understand how people find their shows. You know, that's how I am with the entire social internet, if I am to be completely honest. Like, I had a Twitter account for years that I have never tweeted from. I didn't really use it. At least, not in the quote, social way. I really just liked being moderately engaged or informed on global affairs and looking at cute animal pictures. And Twitter is great for both superficial information and cute animals. Neat. Well, not exactly neat. There's a lot more to the internet than that, and I'm bad at most of it. And you know what else? I think a lot of people aren't great at socializing, but I might be one of the few who fail in a digital context. Maybe don't think too much about that if you don't want a sudden controversy, because I promise I am getting to that. In time. If you didn't know about my other podcast, The Oracle of Dusk, I'm really curious how you managed to find this one, but hi, let me catch you up. The important thing is that the Oracle of Dusk, whose titular character is named Delphi, or calls herself Delphi, has a Twitter account. Or the show has a Twitter account, with her name on it to create some sort of immersion. And that was the point. I mean, step one, immersion. Step two, a series of question marks. Step three, fan base. Okay, in terms of a plan, that isn't so great. But I thought that's what other people were doing, even if I didn't understand it. So that had to be the thing to do, right? And this may seem cold, but why couldn't I do that too? I mean, I had this story to tell, and people might find it mildly interesting, but only if they can hear it. So I made the show and then the Twitter account and started off only making in-character tweets. I built up the account, connected with other audio fiction fans and creators, kept tweeting, made more connections, kept tweeting, and all the while I was trying to maintain a distinct all-lowercase style, to the chagrin of autocorrect. But then that stopped. And then before, or... I don't know, but it wasn't me tweeting as Delphi anymore. It was something else, and whatever it was, I don't know if I understand it. But it felt familiar. It has happened before. I know that, and I know that this is something I need to talk about. The Oracle of Dusk is Delphi's story. Now I need to tell you mine. Mine.